Hey, 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 what's up, folks? Welcome back to the Rotobomb Podcast. Pete Davidson here, as always. Uh, sorry about the gap between uh, the last show and this show. Got a little busy last week. Uh, good news is I will be coming back uh, either tomorrow, uh, probably probably Thursday, actually, with another episode this week. I'm going to make up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make good on that. Uh, missed pod. Um, so today we're going to get into j- just a couple things. I got about a half hour here. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is um, Odell Beckham. And um, the point I want to make um, for us in Dynasty is that I-, I think clearly we have two scenarios here. You know, call it the two OBJs, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think this just is just a basic physical thing. We don't know to the full extent what's going on with his knee. Is this a knee that's never going to be the same? Or is this a knee that has been fully rehabbed and Beckham is going to make sure he's in the right spot uh, before he, you know, goes out there and puts himself at risk? You know, it's important because in one scenario, if we're going to get the real Odell Beckham at age 30, you know, I'm sitting there reading Roto World yesterday. They're talking about how DeAndre Hopkins would be such a great player to get at 31. Well, why wouldn't Odell Beckham be a great player to get at 30? You know, um, again, if the knee is right. So we have to prepare ourselves for either scenario. So we don't want to overpay and just assume that we're going to get the real OBJ. That would be a mistake, clearly. Obviously, we don't need to, though, because most people have basically written this guy off. So what I'm getting at is, you know, what should the cost to play be if you want to entertain the idea of having of having Odell Beckham on your fantasy team? Now we get into scenario B, where there's sort of two scenario Bs. One, the knee is playable, but it's not what it used to be. And in the other, the knee is sort of really risky, and he wants to get, essentially what Beckham is trying to do is get some money you know, and then probably he can't trust his knee. And, you know, he's not going to play for nothing with the idea that he's probably going to go down at some point. So, you know, is he hiding something and he's sort of trying to get one last payday? Or has he worked his ass off, gotten back to where he needs to be, and he's not going to play for cheap? It, it really could be either one of those things. Um, you know, if you look at his, you know, his the choices he's made, the way he's played this are consistent with either scenario. Um, but what's clear is he's a guy who wants either one last payday or one more, you know, air quote, real legit payday. Um, and, and, you know, again, his behavior is consistent with somebody who is, you know, who has made it back and now wants to get paid as such. Um, so, you know, that makes sense. You know, maybe teams were telling Beckham last year, well, hey, come in play for us for a couple weeks. You can show everybody you're healthy and then you'll get paid. And Beckham's like, yeah, I don't think so. I come in, help you win a Super Bowl, maybe get hurt, make a couple bucks, and then I'm back at square one. No, thanks. I mean, that makes sense. Um, so to me, it's a 50-50 call. Uh, Beckham may not be quite right, but healthy enough to play. He may have a knee problem that his doctors have said, hey, you can play now, but this may not last. So, you know, if he's, if he's on that side, then he's to some extent damaged goods. And, and yeah, he's rosterable, but you don't want to go pay anything for him. The other scenario is this guy could come back. Remember, this is a guy who's going to control his landing spot. Now, I don't love this Baltimore scenario that's playing out, but we can let this stuff play out before we you know, go after him if you want. Um, you know, I mean, if, if, if Jackson goes back to Baltimore and Beckham's the wide receiver one, then yeah, that could be okay. But the Beckham-Lamar Jackson fit is not a wonderful fit. Um, 
So, you know, a, a, the best fit for Beckham is your, your, your traditional guy who can throw from the pocket quickly on time, a guy who's looking to get the football out. Um, you know, an aging Rodgers is a really good scenario for Beckham. You know, going, uh, you know, Josh Wilson, uh, Josh Allen would be a decent scenario for Beckham because he can deliver the ball. He's really tall. He's got great sight line. Um, so he's going to be able to win. Beckham is a guy who can win routes right from the drop. You want a quarterback who's going to be able to take advantage of that. Um, you know, uh, you know, Herbert would be a phenomenal place for Beckham to play. They've already got guys. Um, you know, Mahomes obviously is great for anybody. Um, but, you know, a pocket passer, somebody who can deliver the ball in time, uh, that would be a good spot uh, for Odell Beckham. So I don't know, especially if Baltimore loses Lamar, uh, God knows what he'd be looking at. So I'm not sure if Beckham's going to go do that. That would be a scenario I'm not in love with. Um, but, you know, you know, if Beckham is able to pick a spot where he picks his spot and he's happy, man, he could be pretty good. Um you know, and if he goes to the Jets, obviously, you know, he'll be part of an ensemble offense, not an alpha, not a guy who's going to be putting up monster numbers every single week. But, you know, what if Beckham goes to the Jets and, you know, Wilson gets hurt? He could be Aaron Rodgers number one. I mean, so there's some upside scenarios there. Anyway, so I think Beckham is a guy we want to don't don't buy into either scenario because there's no way to tell which one it is. Um but at the same time, if everybody's just letting Beckham sit there for free, hey, pick up, you know, if we get scenario A and we pick up Beckham for free, huh, that can end up being really nice, especially in deeper leagues. Okay, moving on. Um, just before I get into the rookies we're going to talk about today, and again, I've got about 30 minutes here. we got about 20, 20 or so minutes left. Um, we're moving into this point where we're going to have to um, and this relates to an article I wrote at 444 a couple of years ago when I was, when I was writing. Um, we're getting into that point where our evaluations are going to come up against the draft and the draft capital. We're going to know exactly what the NFL thought of these guys, or at least the team that drafted them. And again, you know, when we're talking about the NFL draft, you never know how far a guy might slip after team A takes him, but we have to go with the draft capital that is established within, okay? But when we process draft capital, I think it's important, and as I got into that article, if you don't respect the NFL's take, you're just setting yourself up to be, you know, in a really painful scenario. The, N the NFL's take is reality, okay? Our takes compared to the NFL are fantasy, okay? Excuse the double entendre there. So, Reality's coming, and we're going to have to adjust what we think based on the realities that the NFL drops on us, okay? But, you know, and as I said, you know, we you disrespect the NFL's ability to judge talent at your own peril. They've got more assets than we do. They have more access than we do. They have better film than we do. Um, you know, you're going up against a bunch of professionals, and as I say in the article, we have a laptop and a dream. So be careful to not disrespect the NFL's ability to judge talent too much. Yeah, they get a lot of stuff wrong, but they also know what they're doing. Um, so these players are going to go in the draft, and then they're going to have a more established value. There's going to be a, a tighter pecking order. These things are going to be applied in rookie draft ADP. We, we've seen it year after year. Things get tightened up after the draft, as they should. But, and it's a big but, you want to be careful to not fall into an automatic way of thinking about it. You do want to be able to take your evaluations and still use them, right? So 
within the NFL draft capital, there is fantasy value. And there are players where the NFL draft capital may be right and just, but it will not translate to fantasy value, right? There are players who have NFL value that is over and above their fantasy value. There are players who have fantasy value that's way over and above their NFL value. And it's important for us. That second scenario would be that average running back who's getting tons of touches, right? This guy, hey, he's a fantasy monster and he's a less than average back. The same can be true in reverse. We need to know contextually what did this pick represent? Did it re represent NFL value? Did it represent fantasy value? Or are they one and the same, right? For, for a lot of players, they're the same exact thing, right? Um, you know, when, uh, you know, when, when, pick anybody, when Justin Fields went, you know, that draft capital is important, but it's also, you know, the, they weren't taking him to be a role player. They're taking him to be a primary quarterback with a running ability. So, what they were thinking is going to translate directly to the fantasy community. In fact, maybe even more, right? So it's important to understand what the NFL team that's taking the player is thinking when they do it. Why do they see him as a round two player when everybody in, in, in the drafting community or the fantasy community had him down as like a five round, six round player, okay? Um, one name I like to go to in these scenarios and nothing against this guy because, you know, I have nothing against this guy, but Tutu Atwell, I think, is a really good example where people in the in the dynasty community were on Tutu Atwell, and it blew my mind. It's like, this is so obviously a, you know, an NFL-specific kind of thing where he went so high because he brings specific traits to the table that the Rams wanted in their offense. He was like, as I like to say, he was a club in their bag. He was a, an arrow in the quiver, he, but he wasn't the straw that's going to stir the drink. Right. So he's got real world NFL applications that make him valuable in an NFL way, but he's never going to get the volume that makes him valuable in a fantasy way. So it's perfectly legitimate. And this is a time where it's okay to take our thumb and put it on the scale. Right. And that's really the trick. We don't ever want to put our thumb on the scale until you want to. And that's a qualitative, you know, touchy feely kind of thing. And you have to be really careful when you do that. But there are times where it becomes fairly obvious, okay? Now, a more touchy-feely version of this same scenario would be like a Tequan Thornton last year, where people were like, whoa, Tequan Thornton, that's pretty early for that player. But why did the Patriots do it? Because they saw NFL applications over and above what would be his projected statistics, right? This guy, whether he's a high volume weapon for the Patriots or not, is going to give them an element. Not only is Thornton long, not only is he fast, he's sudden. And that's a rare combination to be able to put in the football field. So he can show a defense something that they have to deal with, thusly creating route design capabilities you would not otherwise have. Okay, so when we see a player like that, while Thornton, unlike Atwell, does have the ability to maybe make a fantasy splash, it's probably not at the round two level that you would normally want to pay for in a dynasty draft, right? So, and Thornton did drop. Now, my take on him was that, yeah, this is great because I think the player could do it eventually, but I don't want to play round two. I don't want to pay DCAF Met, DK Metcalf prices for Thornton, even though I like Thornton, right? Because Metcalf, from an archetype standpoint, could be a fantasy monster, right? And of course, he went to Seattle and there's a whole other discussion there. But 
it's important to be able to respect NFL draft capital and don't disregard it to your own peril while at the same time understanding that NFL draft capital and fantasy value are two different things. All right. Um, and there, look, we could talk about this for an hour. If you read my article, I go into all kinds of ideas, probably too many to be honest. Um, but we work hard at these evaluations and the reason we do it, and when I say we, I'm talking about all you folks too. The reason we work hard at it is to be able to have that context, to know one from the other and to know when it's a gray area. And, you know, sometimes you're like, okay, we can't figure out which one it is. Okay, well, play the value down the middle or wait for the player to slip. And that's one of the wonderful things about rookie drafts is that if we can identify the guys with upside but without floor value, we can find amazing um, values in rookie drafts, which leads us to our first player um, this week. Okay, so for the last couple days, um, I've been watching film on... Um, well, among other people, uh, Rashawn Johnson out of Texas. Interesting player. You know, he's got that, he's got classic NFL size for a running back. Um, teensy bit on the tall side, but 220, well, he's six foot, 220, uh, ran a 4.58. Very impressive. Um, definitely going to get the attention of NFL teams if they like uh, what they see on film. And I think, you know, for the most part, they, they probably will. Um, this is an interesting one. This is very much like a, um, uh, um, <laughs> blank a Miles Sanders uh, scenario um you know where he was behind Barkley at PSU um and we only had sort of glimpses of the guy but then you know he shows up at the combine big fast um three down capabilities um and you know over time we realized why Barkley was the starter and he was the backup but Sanders was clearly a guy where if he had been somewhere other than Penn State he's probably a starter I think uh Rashawn Johnson is similar um now, there are some things about him in the limited film that I have that I don't like, but by and large, he seems to be a guy, you know, from, you know, from a block of clay perspective, who I think the NFL is going to be into. Um, like I said, he's got that NFL body, um, you know, he shows off NFL talent, you know, albeit inconsistently. Um, this is a guy who could become a three down back in time. You know, he catches it, he breaks tackles, um, he can protect, and I certainly think he can learn to protect even better. You know, this is a guy who has a lot of the real baseline stuff that NFL teams look for. Um, now, you know, there are some things about him that I, you know, I want to see him improve on, but I think it's important to remember this is a player you know, we talk about rawness, and, uh, you know, we talked about it with Richardson last week. Um, this is a player where the rawness is directly related to the fact that he's playing behind a guy who sucks up all the oxygen. So when a guy like uh, Rashawn Johnson gets to the NFL, he's suddenly going to probably be getting more reps, higher level of coaching, um, and he'll be able to put in more time and to get better if he gets a scenario where he's actually getting some playing time. You know, this is a guy who might be getting more snaps in the NFL than he got in college because there's a decent chance the back in front of him is not going to be as good as the back in front of him in college. It's funny how that stuff works. But again, the Miles Sanders scenario. So um, Johnson's a guy, you know, when I watch him, he's sort of a narrow brace runner who gets he wastes a little bit too much motion. Um, he's got the ability to make some cuts. He's got the ability, I think, to actually make people miss in tight quarters 
if he can quiet down his body a little bit. Um, he gives a nice shoulder fake at times, but sometimes I see him using the shoulder fake almost to set up his own timing. It's an inefficient use of movement. Um, I think he's the kind of player, if he can calm down a little bit and actually do less, he could actually gain more yards. Um, and I think you know that's the kind of thing where you improve upon that when you're a guy getting a lot of touches when you're you know when you practice and then you get thrown into games you know you know here and there it's harder to to get better he really strikes me as that kind of player where you know if he was a guy who had had a lot more college usage we would have seen him ironing out this stuff so you know there's every chance that this is who he is but he certainly has that look of a guy where if he goes to the right place and the team likes him and, and and he's also the kind of player where you know he has enough going for him to last long enough you know to to grow into the uh, you know like maybe a starter in the right scenario so you know he's the kind of player for me and you know now shifting over to just pure dynasty value where you know i'm not going to lean in to go get Rashawn johnson what i want to see is i want to see him sort of slip you know the way sanders well, Sanders didn't slip that much, but um, I want to see him sort of move down the board where I can sort of get him cheaper than some of these tiny backs who have good film. Um, so the whole thing with Johnson is sort of understanding that this is a player where there are scenarios that he gets to be like a three-down starter in the NFL. Those scenarios exist, um, whereas some of these other guys while they may be drafted ahead of Johnson, they may be going ahead of him in rookie drafts, they may have more floor value because they catch the football and whatnot, they don't have three-down capability. So, you know, just this is just a player to know. It's we're, we're, I think we're going to have a much better idea on what we want to invest once we see what the NFL chooses to invest. Um, but he's also very landing spot dependent because in a deep backfield, a guy like Rashawn Johnson gets squeezed out. But if he goes to a place... You know where they've where they've purged some running back talent. You know, he could he could he could grow in a secondary role. Um, uh, I should have thought about this off the top of my head. Um, okay, let's assume Cleveland does not bring back um, Hunt, and they've already lost um, the other backup um, Johnson. So, you know. If, if, if Roshan goes and becomes, say, Nick Chubb's backup, now, you're, now you have a scenario where, you know, Chubb's going to be doing most of the work. They'll probably have a, you know, a specialized passing back for certain situations. And now this guy will be sort of slowly worked into the mix. He'll get time behind Chubb. You know, he'll learn from Chubb, blah, 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 blah. And now you've got a guy who's, you know, we don't want to, obviously, nobody wants to root for bad things to happen to Nick Chubb. I mean, who doesn't love Nick Chubb? The dude has like worked his tail off to get to where he is, but in that in that bad scenario, this guy, you never know, he could take off. So um, I just feel like this is a player. I'm not saying this is a guy to build a draft strategy around. I'm not saying this is a guy that we need to have. But he is definitely a player we need to know about. We need to understand what he is, what he can be. And then we can use draft capital slash landing spot to determine, and by the way, rookie ADP to determine like, hey, is this guy, you know, is this guy a source of cheap upside? Um, all right. Um, you know, and again, it, what, you know, one last thing. Um, we talk about rawness. Um, 
and I've, I, I, Scott Barrett actually said this the other day on Twitter, and I thought, and it's this something that we've talked about on this show a lot. Sometimes when a player is raw and inexperienced, yeah, it's a problem. But from the dynasty player point of view, when these players hit, the room for growth is sometimes we can't even calculate it. You know, Josh Allen being the obvious example. So this is one, you know, Johnson's one of those players where, again, we just went through the whole scenario. I don't need to do it again. But if he becomes one of these guys who's like mid-second round, late second round, early third round, who knows, and the landing spot is one where there's some light in that tunnel, we could really have something. So it's, again, it's important to understand when a player's raw. It's important to understand when those things may make this player not succeed. But it's also important to understand when we see a guy like a Gabe Davis who hey, what if this guy puts it together, right? Um, so that sort of leads us to our next player, that whole concept of rawness room to improve. Now, <laughs> I, I apologize for people who probably have already heard me talk enough about one Anthony Richardson, but we're going to spend a little more time here. And I, what, I want, what I want you folks to do, because I just think this is a really important player, and I don't want to push people into drafting this player, and I don't want to push people into like trading up for this player or anything. I'm not trying to create an Anthony Richardson obsession. But here's the thing. I, and, and I think in the wake of the Josh Allen thing, this isn't as hard to do. And this is a, this is a process that I like to go through personally when I'm sort of coming to a conclusion on a player and I'm <laughs> and I'm, I'm not quite sure of where I'm at with a guy. It's like, you know, you can't manufacture clarity. It's really important when you're evaluating, when you're scouting, when you're making your own decisions that you accept your own gray areas. You know, you can't just force a conclusion. Sometimes you have to say, I'm not sure about this guy. Um, and when you get to that point, sometimes you have to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Now, if you come to that point with Richardson, and if your conclusion is that you are going to pass on Richardson, hey, you do what you're going to do. But here's the mental exercise I want you to go through. And, and I want you to do it before you make the decision, not after. And, and this goes to something that Evan Silva and I talked about on this show, which is that sometimes that decision-making point, that point of friction where the rubber and the road meet, is where you actually find out what your true opinion is on a player. You know, and Evan and I both talked about it, how we'll do our preseason rankings and then we'll get into an actual draft and we will override our own rankings because that's when your, the, your true feeling sort of boils up to the top. And in my experience, sometimes with players like Richardson, it's the, that, that, that post-purchase or post-non-purchase feeling is a really bad thing. So try to... And I go, we're getting into some esoteric stuff here, but I think it can be important. If you understand what I'm saying, this can be very useful stuff. Try to envision yourself taking whoever your player X is over Richardson. Now try to put yourself into the mental position of Richardson is about to start his first NFL game. Where is your mind going to be at that time? Think about that. I think if you go through that process, you will realize that when that moment comes, you're going to be nervous as fuck. 
<laughs> okay? And that's the point. This is a player where if you don't take him, you're going to have to live with that. So make sure you understand the, the monumental ceiling that this guy has and apply it to the league that you're in. Now, you may be in a league that is so deep and there are so many starting players and it's a 14-team league that the cost of missing on a pick is so high that you have to counterbalance that with the upside scenario. Okay, so sometimes player floor can be a real determining factor in what we want to do in a rookie draft, but in 12-team leagues, okay, with maybe that don't have deep benches, that don't have deep starting lineups, those leagues tend to turn on upside. They tend to turn on ceiling. The teams that tend to win those leagues tend to be, I'm doing an air quote here, made teams, elite teams. Come on, we all play in dynasty leagues, right? You're listening to this show, you probably play in dynasty leagues. Now, think about the teams that win your leagues. They're not like the teams that win redraft leagues, right? Redraft league champions generally are not strong, are not as strong as dynasty league champions because dynasty champions are in a different format. You've got team, in a dynasty league, you've got usually about 12 teams, right? Now, in my, now, obviously every league is different and you may have a league that's flat, okay? But your typical dynasty league's got two to three teams that are in rebuild mode. And those teams don't have much talent. Now that talent has to go somewhere. So when you've got these three teams in rebuild mode, selling everything off, collecting picks, collecting crap, <laughs> to, so, they, so they finish low, so they get good picks and all that. When you've got teams giving it away, all, that, all those points go somewhere. They go to the other nine teams, right? And now, now let's look at the nine teams that are remaining. A couple of those teams are maybe in the middle and they're wishy-washy and they're saying, maybe I should start selling too. I'm in leagues where there's five teams that are not competing and only seven teams that are. This creates a paradigm where to win or to at least be a team that has a really good chance of winning, you need to be better than good. You need to be great. So when you're in a playing in a league like that, are you drafting for floor or are you drafting for the brass ring? I submit that you're probably better off in a 2QB format that is not deep playing for the ring. Now, that, that, that may not be your strategy, but it's just really important to not make this a intellectual exercise. That's not what this is. I know we all get addicted to, you know, grading a class within that class and then, you know, ranking the guys one through X. But it's important to understand how good these guys actually are, how much upside they actually have. It's also important to understand, now talking about this specific draft class, that this is a really good starting quarterback draft class. There's like, what, six legit guys out there. Now, some of them have complexities. We're not sure, you know, age and, and injury. And, they're, they're, you know, there's some things that are going to make these guys move around. But I've got six guys who could legitimately make it as NFL starters. That's a good draft class. Um, and none of these guys are, you know, faux guys. They all have a real shot at not just making it, but being good. So, you know, back to the point, if you're in a league that rewards floor drafting, it's possible Richardson isn't the safest play. Maybe Stroud is, you know, may, you know, maybe you're in love with the waif. I don't know. And I look, I, I like, I like young a lot. I don't have anything bad to say about any of these quarterbacks, really. You know, 
I think maybe the one thing when we look at this class is going to be landing spot. And, you know, again, we go back to the whole Zach Wilson thing. Some of you may remember my take on Wilson. I really like Zach Wilson. Heck, I still do. But when he went to the Jets, I moved him down my board immediately. And it's, and I'm a Jet fan. You know, sometimes you maybe, you know, too much. Um, But the Jets are quarterback ruiners. It's what they do. Um, So even though I didn't love Justin Fields' landing spot, I saw it at least as maybe generic. Um, And he also is a guy whose physicality can cover up some things. Um, So with QBs, it's important to know if a QB goes to a place that might ruin him. That's that's essentially the thing. It's not so much that I think landing spots are the end all be all, but I, you know, there's. I think the thing with NFL landing spots is mostly we should probably disregard them unless we get extreme, and that's extreme good or bad. Extreme bad Jets, we downgrade, and I, I mean, I make no apologies, <laughs> and th- that it wasn't really a scouting report downgrade. It was simply Jets bad. And I'm downgrading the kid because I don't think they'll protect him and they'll throw him in before he's ready, and that's what they did, but. Let's, let's go to the other side because in reality, it's probably more important. You know, it's easy to cross guys off our list and that's done. But when we're looking at the guys we want to go after and when we're looking at Richardson, again, I'm, it's important to understand I, am not, I have not written my book on this guy yet. I'm just trying to make people sober and make sure you know what you're doing with this guy. Don't just write him off. You're, you could be making a huge mistake. Now, again, back to the other side of the scenario. We like to talk about, you know, how great Mahomes is, and we like to talk about how great Josh Allen is, and hey, some evaluators got it right, and some evaluators got it wrong. But, okay, looking back, we can say, you know, Josh Allen, we didn't know it at the time because the Bills hadn't really, their brain trust hadn't evolved yet. We didn't know. Excuse me. But we can now look back and say, hey, Josh Allen was well taken care of. He got good coaching. He was brought along correctly. They, they put talent around him. You know, in year two, they immediately went in and started filling the field with the guys who were going to help him expand his game and make his game most effective. Even smaller moves like Cole Beasley and people like that. Very smart in terms of how they put talent around Josh Allen. So not to take anything away from the player, but the landing spot has been a definite plus for him. Maybe it wasn't predictable at the time, but it has been. That matters. Because when we look at Allen, we, I, I think it's a mistake to go, this guy was a fait accompli. He got a lot of good sides, a, a lot of upside scenario based on his landing spot. Now, for Mahomes, we knew it going in. He's going to Andy Reid. We know Andy Reid is fucking phenomenal with quarterbacks. Additionally, he got to sit behind Smith. And while, hey, he lost some statistics on that exchange, he also got to watch a professional prepare. He got to watch professional work in the quarterback room. He, uh, he, he, he got a real window into what he needed to do from the neck up to be great. So when, when Mahomes finally stepped in there, he was ready, right? Now, KC's already taken. They're not going to draft Richardson. Richardson's not going to get the Andy Reid treatment. So will he, can he get something similar? So it is going to matter with Richardson. If he goes to a place where we think they're going to ruin him, well, that, that, you know, that, that might be a downgrade. You know, on the other side, if he gets a person who we think is really good, you know, unfortunately, like a Doug Peterson is, you know, already got a Lawrence and, you know, Reed's already got a Mahomes. But let's see what happens with this guy. Um, it's going to matter, you know, where he goes. Um, 
you know, on some level, it's sort of a shame that San Francisco has already sort of played and lost when it comes to drafting uh, quarterbacks with high-end athleticism and, and trading up and losing all their picks because they're, they're not in a position to go after this guy. But if, if the 49ers got their hands on Richardson, we would see things we've never seen on NFL fields before. Um, so, you know, there is a landing spot element to it. We don't want to see him get ruined. Um, and the right spot could really elevate my confidence level. I guess that's sort of the point I'm trying to make here is there are places where you would go and be like, oh, wow, this guy's going to get good coaching. Um, and that'll bring me to my final point. This is a point I sort of made on Richardson last week. But, I, you know, again, I heard somebody compare him to Cam Newton recently. I understand the comparison. In fact, I may have done it last week. But it's important to make the distinction that this guy has speed on, a, on an entirely different level than Cam Newton. Um, now, granted, Cam Newton had feel for the game on an entirely different level than this guy, but that, again, a function of Cam Newton starting lots of games and this guy not. Um, but one thing, and I hit this last week, but I just want to impress upon it. One thing that kept hitting me when I watched Richardson's film is that he fought to see the field. Somebody has taught this guy quite a bit, and now it's just a matter of him applying everything that he's been taught into actual football games but this guy has got a base of technique he's got more than people are giving him credit for and one of the toughest things for nfl quarterbacks and it's if anybody who listened to this podcast over the last like eight years you've heard me talk about cam newton and why nobody helped him mechanically um he's ahead of cam newton mechanically he's already doing things that i was just hoping and praying that people would get Cam Newton to do. Cam Newton was a guy who dropped his eyes too frequently. Now, it didn't cost him a ton because of the way he played, but at the end of his career, when we needed him to take his, his, you know, his quarterbacking, you know, his passing to another level, he couldn't do it. Now, part of it's shoulder injury. We can get into that. But with Richardson, when the rush starts coming down on him and he starts moving around, Watch his head. It does not get knocked down as much as you will see a typical college quarterback's head get knocked down. And I'm not just talking about running quarterbacks. Pocket passers drop out, drop down and look at the rush too. And once a quarterback's eyes are down, it's sort of game over. This kid already has that thing inside him that is fighting for vision. And I'm telling you, it matters. It Plankin matters. Uh, and 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 the fact that he's already there on some level, I'm telling you, when you're talking about a dual threat quarterback who just by the very nature of the way he plays is going to be moving around, the fact that he is a field scanner already, even though everyone's saying how raw he is, this is going to make a difference when it comes to his NFL development. And it's going to make a huge difference if he goes to a place where they understand how to bring a quarterback along. So just... At this point, what I want you to do with Richardson is to keep an open mind. I will say it, he is my dynasty QB1. And for me, it's not close. I'm still looking at it. Maybe I'll flip between now and when I have to actually make these decisions. But this guy's my QB1. That's it. Um, but again, what makes it so damn interesting is that this QB class is strong. And there are other guys with special physical gifts in this class, too. There are years where Richardson would be the QB1, and there's no, there's no doubt about it. Like, if he came out the year Mark Sanchez came out, you know, or, you know, the year that Rosen's, like, near the tip-top of the draft, this, this guy, we wouldn't be arguing about it. But the fact that there's so many guys in this class that are almost made already, and, in fact, the kid from Bama is made, 
that makes this whole thing an interesting discussion. And I think that's why some people are getting caught up in talking about what Richardson can't do instead of focusing on, for Dynasty, what should really matter. Okay, six minutes more than I actually had to do this. I am gonna get into the tight end class in the next pod. I know I said I was gonna do it this pod, but uh, I didn't have time to do it. I need, I need at least 45 minutes to do that because um, I'm gonna have some other things I wanna hit too. So, thanks for sticking with the Rotobon pod. It was good to see that we had some listeners last week. Um, I, I've got a feeling that unfortunately a lot of my people have left Twitter. And I mean, I can't blame you, <laughs> but I still have to do a little Twitter stuff. Anyway, um, hope all you folks are doing well. Really looking forward to these rookie drafts. You're going to hear a lot from me between now and then. So please, if you are on Twitter, let me know what you like about these podcasts and what you don't. Let me know what you're not hearing that you want to hear. Um, and until next time, onward, upward, giddy up. Yeah.